to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey, everyone. So, yeah, wow, it's been a year since I launched this podcast. I'm still a bit shocked that it's lasted this long. For the average lifespan of a podcast tends to be only a few episodes long. I was surprised that I kept editing and kept recording people. I didn't know if I had the actual commitment to do that, but it somehow happened. I still remember releasing my first episode with Justin Favela. It was uh, 2018, September. I just arrived in Berlin. I was living somewhere in Prenzlauerberg. Yeah, I remember the day. I remember the lighting of when I hit the submit button. And I was worried about how I sounded, although I still worry about that. I worried whether I made any sense, what the intro music would be. But that all sorted itself out somehow. And a year later, I'm now in China. I was looking at the early episodes and I noticed a few things such as that my intros have gone longer and maybe better, I think. Uh, I know I have a more clear idea of what it means to be a podcaster along with the sheer amount of work that goes into it. I still wonder a lot of times about the reach of the podcast, how many people are actually listening based on the analytics of the site, although here and there. I still find people are listening and contributing to my Patreon. So again, thank you to everyone who has been listening, all the listeners who supported the podcast. Thank you to everyone who's allowed me to interview them. If you want to, again, show your support, you can always subscribe, tweet about the show using the hashtag PodIn. This specific hashtag was created by Barry of Pods in Color. If you don't know about Barry's website, go check it out. It's a directory of all the different podcasts created by people of color. Or you can always donate to my Patreon for $2 a month. It's not too much. It's less than a grande mocha cappuccino from Starbucks. But you should do whatever is easiest for you. And I love you all the same. So again, thank you to all my listeners. So uh, today I'll be interviewing Billy Lee. Billy works at the intersection of art, pedagogy, and social change. Billy received her BFA from RISD or the Rhode Island School of Design, and she got her MFA from Yale University. Billy actually contacted me as a listener of the podcast, and she wanted to talk to me for research for her dissertation. Her dissertation examines the intersection of race, identity, and cultural politics specifically within the framework of contemporary art and education. And both of those things I've talked a great deal about on this podcast. So I was curious. Billy sent me an essay to give me further context of her work. And I thoroughly enjoyed this essay. I've linked it in the show notes, so go check it out. It gives, I think, a good idea of the research Billy's doing, especially in regards to art criticism and art theory in relationship to colonial studies and talking about race. We had a preliminary chat via Skype before this actual interview to get to know each other better. I actually didn't quite know what to expect or whether our talk would go towards an interesting path, but I recorded it nonetheless just in case, with Billy's consent, of course. We had this interview while 
Billy was completing a residency at Mass Mocha, and I was just about to leave Berlin. So the following interview delves quite a bit into my own reflections about the podcast, what I've learned from the process, and all my different thoughts in between. We talk about our shared experiences going to art school as Asian Americans, the politics of a model minority, and how white spaces want an endless explanation of certain types of non-white otherness. In editing the audio, I thought this would be a good episode to release on the anniversary given the reflective nature of Billy interviewing me. I still have a lot to learn and things I want to do and people I want to interview. Hopefully this will be one of many anniversaries. I really hope that is true. So in any case, I hope you enjoy this. Can you say some stuff? Yeah, um, I just got to Mass Mocha. I'm doing a two-week residency up here. And I just got here yesterday. Um, and for some reason, I just woke up really early. I don't know why. So I'm a little groggy. <laughs> what are you What are you doing in Mass Mocha? Like, what's the project? It's um. Well, it's it's funny. It's um the second time that they're doing this, but they're calling it a faculty residency. And um, you know, it's kind of like a fully funded residency for two weeks, but for. Uh, I think 12 or 13 faculty members of art schools to come together and also partly have some time for ourselves, but also to talk about the, the theme is professional development in the field. Mm -hmm. So they're also wanting to build resources, but also to provide the space for faculty to come together and reflect on the field and where it's going in terms of professional development, education. That sounds fun. It's. I think it's beautiful there right now. It is. Have you been here before? Yeah, I I uh, I visited. I grew up in um, New Hampshire, part of my uh, life. So it's like, I think two hours away from New where, New Hampshire where I live. Yeah, it's a really pretty part of the of the world, but it seems really white. <laughs> it seems well, really colonial. Where, where is it not? <laughs> yeah, it feels. Yeah, I am. Um, I spent seven years in Hawaii. I moved back last year, but but um, there are so many connections between this part of the U.S. and the overthrow of Hawaii. There are a lot of like missionary connections and families who ended up settling in Hawaii and contributing to the overthrow. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it feels yeah, I it feels weird to to come here, but anyway, there's a lot of history. Yeah. Um, so how do you want to proceed with this, I guess, chat? Yeah, so I can also start by answering any questions that you might have. But the questions, I mean, basically to give you a sense of um, how I'm thinking about this is I just have a few general questions in the areas that I've mentioned in the email. Just really um, curious to connect with you and others who are who are intentionally carving out different kinds of spaces for dialogue. And, you know, it's happening through arts programming. It's happening through kind of um, these informal, like invited artist talks and classroom visits. But I also see it happening um, virtually and through social media. And I was really excited to come across your podcast and just kind of, you know, your own and initiative in wanting to carve out the space and especially as um, an Asian American artist, I think 
Um, I'm interested in how the different vectors of race and ethnicity are factoring into the art world because typically conversations are very black or white. Yeah. And um, I also wanted to intentionally connect with, with, you know, different, different racially identified folks to, to see how, how we are moving through these conversations and, and what we see lacking and what, you know, we would like to see more of and that sort of thing. So, yeah. But any questions for me before we just, you know, begin chatting? Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I was curious to learn more about you, what, yeah, I guess like your experience from going to, I guess, MFA at Yale to where you are now, uh, how was, you know, what was your experience like at Yale? Was it sort of like in retrospect? I was curious in retrospect, was it something that you then considered as potentially problematic or violent or even in the midst of it happening, you were recognizing it? I asked that because I think for myself, it took me a while till after I graduated to recognize certain systems of uh, structural issues that I wish things were different, but in the midst of it, it was less clear. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and this is great because I have a similar question for you. So it would be, it, it's nice to organically just kind of um, to open up this this topic back and forth. Yeah, so it's actually been 10 years almost exactly since I graduated. I went to Yale and graduated in 2009. And, and exactly as you say, during my time there, I just felt, I mostly felt it affectively. Like I felt like even from the very beginning, I felt very ambivalent about being there. I found it really difficult to connect with my cohort. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's not unique to my cohort. You know, it happens in other spaces too. And I think the size of our department had something to do with it. There was a lack of intimacy that I think a lot of other departments or other programs have, but we, there were 40 students total first and second years together. And something about the size, something about the, the heavy elitism of Yale and everyone kind of performing or outperforming one another, even if they're not really realizing it, just because the, the environment was so, it had a charge to it because of, of Yale's reputation. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing really intentionally being done from the part of the faculty. I think there was a lack of awareness on their part. And I think that has changed significantly since 2009, especially because of things happening out in the world too. Mm-hmm. When I was there, that just felt like there was really no space for for deep conversation, and and I was also just starting to really tackle issues of race and identity in my own work in a much more explicit way, and it was very very new to me. And I think a lot of artists feel this way when they're kind of tackling issues of identity in their work in an environment that doesn't really support that conversationally. And, you know, it was bad work. It was, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. it was, it was, it was um, like very clunky. And I was, I think a lot of, a lot of folks and a lot of folks who have a painting, painting background also approach issues of identity through performance and, and video because it's just more, you know, direct and it's actually you're utilizing your body. And so I was doing that and it was just, 
I was putting myself out there and it was, you know, looking back on it, it was all really, really bad. But I was, <laughs> I was really taking a, a chance, you know, yeah. really wanting to, I think I was also reaching out. I think I was also saying like, I want to have these conversations mm. and trying to say that in the, in the, you know, with the tools that I have as an artist and every attempt, every crit, every studio visit, I mean, most studio visits, I don't really None of the studio visits really stand out as being or serving that need for me, but yeah, but it would just it just really fell flat, and um, I just felt more and more. Uh, well, I just I just felt like there was there was very little little support to have that conversation within the school of art, and mm-hmm. so that's I just started spending less and less time in the studio and I stopped, um, having, or I, I, my studio visits kind of waned. I was, I wanted to take a break. I was spending a lot of time taking other academic classes and that's when I was taking a lot of classes in American studies. Mm-hmm. And that's where I eventually kind of went, you know, wanted to do my PhD in the field of American studies. Cause it, I felt like I was able to have those conversations in those classrooms and not in like crit spaces. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I had a really hard time, um, after, after my MFA and I really, that's when I, th- I thought I was actually really just leaving the art world and, and, um, I really wanted to pursue something else, but I didn't know what that would be. Um, and so it's kind of been this, it's kind of come full circle in a way after 10 years that, that I'm at, I feel like I have renewed energy to to kind of look at this critically yeah. from this vantage point. Did you apply directly to a PhD program from Yale or? No, I, I had never, ever intended on getting a PhD. <laughs> I, I was just trying to, on the one hand, buy myself some more time. And it was during the recession, so there were also no jobs. And I think I was just looking for a fellowship or, or a funded program for me to just kind of just literally, you know, have a stipend and, and buy myself some time before jobs opened up. Yeah. But, um, but so initially I was just thinking of maybe I can enroll in an MA program because I never identified as a writer. I never, I was a horrible writer in college and I never thought it was something that I could do. Yeah. <laughs> But when I moved to Hawaii to do a different kind of project, I ended up making a documentary film. I met uh, my current advisor, who was really supportive. She had also done her MFA and then did her PhD 20 years later. And she was like the mentor that I really needed at the time. She convinced me to work with her. And if if it wasn't for her, I don't think I would have done it at all. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I never thought I was going to stay either just because it just, I didn't understand what it meant to be a scholar just because all of my experience was in the arts and I really didn't know how it worked in academia. Yeah. Um, so I was just thinking I'll, I'll take classes for a year. They're giving me, you know, a, a teaching assistantship. So it's like a job. I like teaching and, um, one year led to two years and then led to eight years. <laughs> There's a lot in between, yeah. A lot, a lot of fits and starts in between, but but um, I just kind of ended up sticking with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's cool. I want to go to Hawaii, but haven't been there yet. Yeah, I guess my experience. I think 
was, I would assume, similar to yours. Although I think I tackled my Asian American identity maybe more straightforward, but I knew that I wasn't getting the dialogue that I wanted, and it kind of, kind of took me a very slow process to realize that. That's why I asked you how how you came to that realization. I also think for like a lot of Asian diaspora that issues of identity in America is not oftentimes not looked at too critically because of the fact that a lot of Asians, specifically East Asians, get the privilege of being the model minority and not looked at as a minority. And and since we're talking about the art world, it being a privileged space that like perpetuates this idea. And and I didn't really have any role models. All the Asian artists that I knew tended to not be too critical or they tended to, I think, as they tend to like just focus on the aesthetics or do something that's like super scientific or super formal. And yeah, and then as I went, I like, oh yeah, I, had, I was lucky to get go to residencies in between my school years in the summer. And every time I'd meet like one other person of color and then our dialogue was just completely different. And so that started getting me thinking about that more. Yeah. And then that was sort of like the slow process of me wanting a different space to talk about it or think about it. And also realizing I needed to have that dialogue to improve how to look at how to do my own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to to hear more about your experience in, in your MFA program and even prior and the kind of reception or the responses that you got from folks, both faculty and students about your work? Uh, I mean, it'd be, let me try to think if I can say that succinctly because each piece is different. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, so like the, I mean, if you want to take it all the way back, I started drawing and painting like in high school or, I mean, I've been drawing ever since I was a little kid. But then when I got to college, I didn't really, I was just like a good, I was like, quote unquote, air quotes, like good painter in the sense that I formally could draw well, I could make shapes as they look like in reality. I felt comfortable with using oil paints, but I didn't know what to paint. And towards my last year, I started painting bananas and Twinkies. You know, mm-hmm. for the uh, for for people who don't know, it's a, ter- a prerogative term, that pejorative term that's used to describe Asians who aren't yellow enough. So mm-hmm. it's like yellow on the outside, but on the inside. And I guess that was the first time that I realized I had to explain myself. And it wasn't a complicated explanation, but it was like this was something that everyone, at least in the Asian American community, knew about. And then it was strange to like talk about this and then like have nobody know or have heard of this term but then beyond that they also didn't know how to talk about it this was an undergrad yeah this was an undergrad Mm -hmm. and that was like the first time I felt like I had something to talk about but I very quickly stopped that because I realized it was a dead end and also by the time I graduated I didn't want to paint anymore and so that was like the last thing I did and then by I didn't know if I wanted to do art. I went to Korea for two years, taught SATs because I wanted to to travel. And uh, the Mm -hmm. SAT 
or like any um they call it hagwon like teachers teaching yeah, english. I taught english in korea too oh you did <laughs> uh yeah yeah so like they pay for your flights usually and they give you like good housing stipend or they used to i don't know if it's the case anymore so i was like yeah i'll do that travel and then i moved to la with some of my savings and started doing web developments and uh-huh. then i think after my first year and a half i i think the phrases you you saw your you would see your life flash before you and i realized i could keep doing this my entire life and uh-huh. I, i wanted to do art this would be the point in which i try again just to see what would happen So I think those three years gave me the distance to stop painting and make sculpture. And so by the time I got to grad school, I was just happy to be in school with with work that I was excited to make. Whereas in undergrad, I always felt like a real fraud. I mean, I think we all feel like frauds forever, but like I really felt like a fraud in undergrad because I was like, I don't know what to paint. And I didn't even know what my interests were. Whereas by the time I went to grad school, I think I had a somewhat of a clear idea of like, or at least understanding of not having anyone tell you what to do and being able to make the work, which was the thing that I I couldn't really do in undergrad. And then the first piece I made happened to be a performance piece. Teacher gave me an assignment to make a, a mold that I could not show as a sculpture So it only could exist as either a live performance, a video, or pho- photograph. And then I did a video, and then it's that's when I kind of I think kind of like what you discovered in grad school. It can be for some people easier to talk about uh, one sense of self with the body or through performance, because I like to think of it as like a painting or sculpture tends to be one or two steps removed from the individual, and you can mm-hmm. in in a way. Hide from yourself, hide your body from the right. audience, and also not implicate yourself. And I found that by presenting my body or a body, that there's a, there's an immediate implication of something. There's something that feels like there's a, there's a technically a living person that's staring back at you, or in your presence, or on screen that is not a representation of a person, but the actual person, or a recording of a person, right? So that's sort of. I think I didn't have the language to say all of that when I made the video, obviously. But as I was thinking about it, I think that's sort of what I came to the conclusion of. And yeah, and then that's sort of in the re- more recent work has sort of shifted over to just storytelling. And my body is not always as relevant. Sometimes I use my body now just because of convenience. But it's yeah. I mean, the work sort of changed into storytelling, and I found that storytelling has been my interest for the past a uh, few years. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned that you kind of delved into exploring Asian American identity head on. Um, did you continue to do that throughout grad school? And and I'm curious to hear more about. This notion of having to explain yourself, and if that's something that you continued, you felt that you continued, that you felt that you needed to continue to do around your work. Or I, I realize there's, a, I, I guess, I realized that there wasn't, I wasn't interested in explaining myself, and I think maybe while in grad school, especially the first two years, I think I was just happy to be in school. Mm-hmm. I, think I remember, and I, I would. Not everyone necessarily had the greatest time at my MFA program, but 
but Stop. I, whatever reason, I was able to thrive in that environment. Like, I just was and enjoy. I enjoyed all the classes. I enjoyed being in studio all the time. I enjoyed just talking about art and being with other people who were there just to talk about art. Obviously, usually in a formal in a formal way. Um. I mean, like, so the first video piece I did, it was basically, I made a, I, I sculpted, a, a like, a, a head of Mao Zedong and then made a cast out of it and then cast that in, in rubber and then I wore it and then I filmed myself ripping the mask off my face, which, you know, looking back, I don't think it's like the greatest piece. Um, and there was just, I guess the earlier works were kind of didactic, but also, I mean, it's sort of like the people got it for the most part. And then they would just simply talk about what it's doing successfully, formally or not formally. I think the thing that I realized where like I had, I didn't feel like explaining myself and people were giving me a hard time was my, my end of year thesis show where I was, I somehow returned back to the banana. Uh, I didn't mean to do it because my whole point of stopping painting was I didn't want to be known as like the banana painter. <laughs> but um I ended up, I, the piece was, I ended up visiting a banana grove in Miami and filming myself running around this banana grove. And I painted myself orange in reference to this specific color, Chinatown orange, which is a glidden paint color that you can buy at Home Depot. And so I kind of, so I was sort of smashing together like two very different signifiers and language and text-based ideas. So like the Chinatown orange, like who gets to name a cultural neighborhood and why certain neighborhoods are more, so, so, I guess, society or companies are deciding to be more okay to be named. So I always say, like, you know, there's Chinatown Orange, but, like, no companies saying, like, Harlem Black or Harlem Blue, right? Mm-hmm. And and then there's tons of Native American colors that are named after Native American skin. Uh, mm. Tons of, a lot of Asian references, like China White. Mm-hmm. Um so, but the, so the, so the Chinatown orange was my way of like looking at it from a broader societal view. And then me being painted Chinatown orange was kind of going back to, um, and running around the banana tree, sort of like trying to implicate myself in this sort of banana grove and thinking about home and the absurd notion that I'd somehow find home if I were to travel to this banana grove. Yeah. But I didn't say any of that in the text and even at the uh, final critique, like the guy running the the class was like, actually, we spent like half the class talking about why I didn't like say these cultural signifiers in the text. And yeah, and I was, I was quite uh, stubborn in my stance. Like, I don't feel like I need to have to s- spell out everything, especially okay. since the video was a narrative it was like seven minute video so i felt like everything that i wanted to say was actually spilled out for you in the in the narrative that i gave so yeah and then so that's that was that and then uh, wait on that just to follow up on that on that position of not not feeling like you have to spell out every context or a signifier that you're employing do you agree with that position now looking back on it and do you still kind of um make those decisions in your work and writing um i think it depends on the piece and Mm -hmm. 
I'm trying to, I mean, that's a good question. I think it depends on the piece. A lot of times now I'll have to write like some paragraph just whenever I'm applying to residencies, they always want like a description. And since the video excerpts tend to be like 30 seconds to a minute, the, the paragraph description would be helpful. Um, but I think, I don't know. I mean, I think it depends on the case. I also think it's like an unfair expectation that everyone has to get it. I mean, on one hand, I guess an elitist position to not have to feel like you have to explain yourself, but I guess I go back and forth and it depends on the piece. Like I have a piece where I basically, I make a video essay and I regurgitate like Edward Said's Orientalism text and yeah. um, there's like, I don't really think there's a need for me to explain it. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, and then I also think about, you know, institutions that have been given renown or fame or high high praise because they don't explain anything. So I think of like, uh-huh. there was a show in Venice 2015 at the Fondazione Prada. And it was like a three-person show that had... Thomas Demann, the photographer, Alex Kluge, who's a German filmmaker, and then a set designer. Um, it was a woman, I forgot her name. And there's no text in the entire show. And it was like this weird show where like the man had photographs that were referenced that were similar to Kluge's films, and then the the set designer would like actually make sets from the films that of Kluge and then he'd put his films in there or the set designer would like recreate like a room from like the hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin and like put like Thomas Demand's photographs there. And so yeah. it was like this sort of, a lot of people really liked it. A lot of, I guess, elite elitist academics loved it. And then, so I was thinking like, how come these artists are allowed to formally play with your mind why does things outside of formalism have to be explained? Uh-huh. I would argue that the general art public would know less, know just as little about that show as an art person would know about, you know, some of my works or works that deal with post-colonial topics, or I think also about like feminist works, how you don't have to like always explain feminism in a piece. You don't need yeah. like, an explanation of first, second, third generation feminist movements to accompany every piece that a woman puts up about feminism, right? Um, yeah, and it, it, it also strikes me that, like in a lot of my conversations with with undergraduate students, what kind of recent ones who um, grew up during the Black Lives Matter movements, that there's also a sense of, more of a sense of awareness of, of when they want to educate the public and when they don't mm-hmm. and um and the ways that you know within crit spaces in particular there's this entitlement that comes from the part of you know from kind of a white audience faculty and students alike in kind of demanding that explanation or demanding you explain your biography or you explain your cultural context because it's not it's not taken as a given or it's not taken as a neutral context, but kind of an exotic or a different one Yeah, that demands like that explanation. Yeah. But, but also like, I guess exp- exp- expanding on that, just thinking about like um, 
I guess thinking again about like feminism, like when a woman shows her work, especially in my MFA, there's always another woman there to start the discussion, even if the half the class didn't necessarily know the history of feminism and the feminist movements, right? And I think that also speaks to the importance of diversity in the sense that like if if schools really are interested in having a space, a safe space of learning, then you need to have that diversity of thoughts so that ideally there'd be at least two people having a discussion and it's okay if the rest of the class doesn't know about it or has to listen. Like I always argue that I've learned so much about white gay males and white feminism just because there's just more than one of them in the class and they could could have an entire discussion and critique about a certain work and not not that I needed to enter that space but I was learning and and there wasn't like a need to have to explain it and everyone's smart enough to kind of like understand where things are going when you have two people that are in dialogue you know and you're in Berlin right now right yeah I'm in Berlin I'm so curious to hear kind of your reflections or what you're noticing in terms of issues of race or the ways that that you feel racialized differently in the context of Germany and just what you're noticing in terms of racial dynamics being in a different different Uh, country. It's completely different here. (laughs) Yeah. The dialogue dialogue doesn't really exist, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean... I mean, it's complicated, I think, specific to Germany. Germany, basically after, I think, World War One or World War Two, they lost all their their colonies. And so Germany, I think a lot of Germans kind of clap their hands and say, see it as a clean slate. And uh-huh. so they see like colonial issues as a French, Portugal, or British issue because they lost uh-huh. all their colonies. So... And slavery is like an American issue. Uh-huh. And so to the minds of most Germans, I mean, obviously there are definitely black, brown and Asian people in in Berlin and in Germany um, having important dialogues. But of course, the numbers are much fewer. And it's also an issue of class because all that text and dialogue oftentimes happens in English. Uh-huh. right? And so you have to be of a very specific person to both know English and seek out those texts that are not distributed or disseminated in the majority of German academia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what is the research that you're engaged in there? Um, I was supposed to look at a lot of Fluxus archives, and I looked mm-hmm. at a few. And, I mean, the, the original project was for me to look at Fluxus, which for people who don't know, they're a group that, dealt with like ephemeral work. A lot of it was a reaction to to um, the gallery system at the time. Um, they were influenced by John Cage, the ideas of chance. And a lot of the work that they did wasn't meant to be documented, but the first Fluxus uh, event happened in Wiesbaden, Germany. And I suspect that had a huge part in like influencing a lot of activity to happen in Germany which also led to a lot of collectors and um, patrons funding these events and and by virtue of that, getting and collecting paraphernalia, letters with artists. And so there are um, a large number of archives spread throughout Germany 
that have these. And so I was looking at trying to trying to figure out or draw a link between like these these performance live performances that are now now archived in contrast to performance now which are assumed to be archived when they happen just by virtue of Instagram uh everyone uh-huh. having having a camera phone and trying to contrast that but i had, i i felt like i had some issues because i couldn't document the the material at these archives and i was hoping to make a film out of it but because i couldn't really uh-huh. document it yeah i i just ended up just making my own videos and uh, making the most of my time just doing my own work mm-hmm. so they don't be what you mean by they don't allow you to document they just don't allow you to take capture or take photos yeah of yeah. anything in their archive oh, interesting yeah. i mean i think you have to pay but like the way that i've always worked is i film first and then figure out what to do with it later but because i didn't have a specific right. thing to film i wasn't right. gonna just and i was hoping i don't know if you know um Camille Henro's video mm-hmm. "Gross Fatigue," mm-hmm. but I was imagining trying to make a piece like that, where I, I uh, like Camille just sort of was there, had access to the archives, and just sort of filmed, and then like she did something interesting with it after, and that was sort of my imagination, but uh, mm-hmm. that didn't happen. <laughs> Do you foresee yourself staying in Berlin longer? Uh, no, I got a so actually I got a teaching gig in China. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I'll be in uh, Zhuhai, which is an hour away from Hong Kong. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so. Yeah, that's another cultural shift. It's a huge <laughs> cultural shift, yeah. Are you excited about that? Yeah, I'm excited and scared because I've never, I mean, I was born in America. I don't, also don't really speak Mandarin. I know a little bit of Cantonese. Yeah. yeah. So... Definitely when I got the job, I was nervous because I was like, do I really want to move again? I was feeling tired of moving. Yeah. But I didn't really have anything going on in Berlin. I could have applied for an artist visa, but I would just have to then get a bunch of side jobs. And it was just, I thought it'd be good to like, you know, be a professor at university and, and also like learn Chinese since I do a lot of work with my Chinese American heritage. I thought it was important to learn Chinese yeah. and be there. Yeah. Yeah. What What will you be teaching? Um, I'll be teaching like multimedia, media arts, video arts. Okay. Uh, yeah. Is yeah. it a is it an art school or an art program? Um, I think it's like an art department. It's like this weird. Um, it's a new so like Zhuhai is like a new city. They um, so like because no one can own land in China. China can just decide to make a new city and restructure things. Uh, so, yeah. So this this particular city is apparently supposed to be the next Silicon Valley, or China's trying to mold it into that. So there's a lot of like tech companies uh, uh, that China's. I'm not. I don't know. Like if China's forcing them to move there, but like they're planning for that. And then um, this particular school, Beijing Normal University, uh, joined up with Hong Kong Baptist University. So they kind of made a new university in this new city because space is Uh, cheap and being promoted by the government. uh, Yeah. Is it a one year gig or is it longer? It's a two year gig. So I think that'd be enough time for me to learn Chinese. Yeah. That's that's really exciting. I'm so curious to hear what your experiences will be. I've been really particularly interested in 
this other economic flow of international students and the active recruiting of wealthy Chinese, mostly East Asian yeah. uh, mm-hmm. students into U.S. art schools. Mm-hmm. Or, and, not, um, well, not just U.S., but like U.K., Germany. Yeah, yeah, France. exactly. And this alternative or secondary market that's starting or probably has been around for a long time of like special portfolio development schools and oh, coaches yeah. Yeah. that are intermediaries, you know, and, and, um, yeah, I'm just so curious to see what you'll, what you'll, um, what you'll notice and, and if you will be able to tap into some of that, because I'm speculating that in the next 10, 15 years or in the next few generations of art students, that the, the the art world is is shifting drastically in a in a more global frame because of this active dependence of Western art schools on Asian money and Asian tuition. Yeah, and I and I'm so just I'm so curious on on how it will shift the cultural conversations. So I want to segue to talking about the podcast and um, asking you to to reflect to reflect on it actually and to, to maybe speak to how you're seeing the project uh, from your current vantage point and and what work you sense the podcast doing or ha- have done for you um, yeah I mean that's a good question I, I'm always asking myself what is it doing I mean I think I from a artistic standpoint it's been really helpful because I mean, it's like, so I, I made the podcast because after I got out of grad school, I was lucky to get an adjunct position at my university and the, my school was slowly also starting to diversify. They're starting to hire teachers, although like when I look back at the recent hires of the past year, still like too many, uh, white women and white men and yeah. And, and I started to, but I, I, be, I, I befriended like one particular artist, Devin Shimoyama. He was like a painter from Yale. We hung out a lot and I was like really happy to like finally, you know, have a different dialogue that just literally did not exist in the entire art school. And after that year, I got a residency in Miami, Florida, and I met uh, who, someone who is now my closest, one of my closest friends, Justin Favela, and he hosts a podcast called Latinos Who Lunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, Justin's an artist. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I at, up until that point, I only use podcasts to listen to like Radio Lamb, uh, you know, NPR shit, uh, WTF with Mark Marin. And then when I met Justin, like Justin, he like created a huge, whole community with his podcast. He'd like actually reach yeah. out to his podcast and be like, hey, I'm in Miami. And he wants to like hang out with me or show me like what's good food there. And then he also recommended me all these different types of podcasts that like I wasn't even aware of that, but they were so specific. So like, you know, you had his, which is like a Latin gay art perspective. He um, told me about like a teen with Queen Queen and Jay, uh, which is like a black feminist perspective. Uh, Nancy, which is like Asian gay uh, perspective, both, uh, I think it's hosted by both a man and a woman. And they're so specific that I enjoyed the nicheness of it. And also what was important about them being so specific is I recognized they couldn't exist 
outside the podcasting platform because if you had to go mainstream, no one would really be interested in it mm-hmm. from a broader perspective. And for better or for worse, I don't know what the numbers are for those shows, but I definitely like learned a lot and also realized it was a place to also meet people. Like Justin was like reaching out to people and I recognized as like, he was just like as an excuse, he like reached out to a curator and just be like, Hey, like here's my podcast. Like, or after meeting them, just be like, you want to chat? And I also saw how he was able to develop like actual relationships that were beyond like, Oh, come visit my studio or let's get coffee sort of thing, you know? And I've, yeah. ne- I've, I've never really found that to be like creating any real lasting relationships other than like an acquaintance. But like I saw him do the podcast and he was like really getting into like, uh, you know, topics that wouldn't be talked about oftentimes in a coffee shop or a studio visit I found. And at least in ways that I think strengthen the bond between the two, because there's an intimacy to that interviewing process. Mm-hmm. So after that, I just, I spent a year doing a bunch of residencies and I road tripped all over the U.S. And I racked up all those hours in the car listening to different podcasts. And I started thinking about maybe having my own podcast. And so that was sort of my goal to make the podcast, which is a way for me to meet people, for me to also learn how to talk about it. Because I think also talking about race, talking about identity, you need to practice it. And it's it's a forever process, right? And so mm-hmm. I think someone once described like talking about identity or race is sort of like running a marathon. Like no one's actually really good at it, but you just do it just to maintain a certain level of like shitty fitness for your body, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, minus like the elite, the elite runners, but you're always running. You still do it, but you're just like continually bad at it. And so like talking to Justin, talking to Devin, talking to Yvette, um, the other artist who was at the residency, it was just like, I was just learning so much and I wanted oh. to continue and not forget that because I felt like, especially as an Asian American and referring back to what I just said, like being a model minority, you can easily kind of forget that. Uh, or you can like allow yourself to slide by not thinking about race or not having to in a way that other people, especially black and brown bodies, don't have the privilege of doing. Uh-huh. And so I want it. And, you know, it's easy to not think about that and just be sucked in. So I wanted to also constantly expand who I'm talking to. Right. I think there's a saying, show me who your friends are and I'll show you who you are. Right. And so every time now I meet like, a white ally the first thing I kind of check on them is like how many of their friends are like not a not white you know <laughs> yeah and, and but but yeah so that was sort of the original goal it's been a year it's almost been a year since I, I cool. launched I launched the podcast so I started recording February two Februarys ago but I didn't start releasing them until last September so I spent yeah. like six months sort of recording people thinking about how I wanted to record Mm-hmm. And what I realized the podcast allowed me to do was actually be more abstract in my art. Mm, okay. It actually gave. Yeah, I remember. I think I listened to that episode when you were talking about that. That's interesting. Yeah, like I feel like I don't have to explain myself because I've created like hours and hours of me just blabbing on mm-hmm. about where I stand on these things, and so there's no question where I stand on it, and so oh. it allows me to like be more playful and like not have to like try to be like a socially conscious 
artist because I'm actively actually doing something that yeah. I feel is much more direct than any art piece could ever do. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, I feel that way about writing and researching too. Yeah. Yeah, like I, you don't have to put all of your eggs in one basket. Do you still make work? I I do, but in a very kind of like uh, more of like a doodly, doodly yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> and mostly just because, yeah, this work is just so writing and research is, it takes so much time. Yeah. It's really, and I'm such a slow writer. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I'm curious to hear if, if your sense of community has shifted or if you can, if you can feel that shift or, or, or and, and the, the kind of reach that you see your podcast having. Uh, I have no idea about the reach my podcast. Mm. <laughs> Uh, for the last, I think th- three, four months is sort of held at a steady 110, 120 subscribers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's not like growing and sometimes I wonder who is listening, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know? Um, yeah. So like, in yeah, in terms of analytics, I have no idea. Like my Instagram count hasn't really improved. The Facebook likes haven't really improved. So yeah. I'm sort of doing it for myself, which is also it's I guess it's not a lot of pressure on me, mm-hmm. and it's also benefiting me in other ways, kind of like how I explained. Um, in terms of like the my group circle has definitely changed. I mean, I think just me seeking out people, and also having these dialogues, allowing me to also become hyper aware of different situations and. I think again, like thinking about who show me who your friends are, and I'll show you who you are, and thinking about who you want to be associated with. Yeah. And like being aware of what people are actually saying and trying to figure out like, is that something that you even want to deal with or be part of? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's sort of like, I think sometimes it's easier just to be ignorant. I think if someone's people have always said that, you know, and I think like once you've sort of started to think about these issues, you can't just sort of ignore it. And so mm-hmm. I think it, I've definitely like stopped caring about certain people that I've have met or will meet or am meeting just because I just don't really care for their stance or where they come from mm-hmm. in a yeah. way that I, in a way that I think in the past I might have been more lenient about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you see yourself continuing these conversations? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. know. I have like, yeah. I have like um 20 in the queue so I could, I could potentially do this for another year. I just don't know who's in in China. I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not interested in interviewing like Chinese Chinese people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they don't actually care about this. Okay. And and as as I've said, they're like the next white people. But but yeah, like I mean, all the Chinese people I've spoken to, they these aren't issues that that concern them. And so it, it would have. I guess it would depend on who I'm meeting in China. But I just have no idea. So I'm sort yeah. of like, yeah, just see where it goes. I might have to take a break or, you know, in my travels, I might, you know, add on a few things. And maybe by the end of two years, I'll have enough to, like, keep it going. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you have you heard of the scholar Candace Chu? C-H-U-H. The name is really familiar. She She wrote a pretty significant manuscript came out i think 
think 2006, 2007, called Imagine Otherwise, okay. Asian Americanist Critique. Okay. Um, she just, she's working on a new project. She finished a, another book, but I think she's now working on like a whole new project. And I just found a lecture of it online. I could send it to you if it's of interest to you. But, oh, yeah. but, um, but she, she was framing her, what she has coined the Asian Americanist Critique as like a critique of empire and race from the particular social history of, of Asians in the U.S., mm-hmm. but framing that alongside the growing uh, demographics, like growing Asian Americans in the U.S., but also of more flexible East Asian or Asian class or global class. Yeah. And what economics or economists are coining the, the Asian century, the 21st century is the Asian century and the waning of the American century in terms of wealth and power. Yeah. Um, and I'm just thinking more and more about, you know, what is the critical position of, of the racialization of Asianness in the U S because, because on the one hand, you know, it's another broad category, like a lot of racial categories, but historically, I feel like because of like model minority and other, other political stakes that Asian, Asian-ness in the U.S. has never had that kind of political awakening as other categories like Latinx or even like maybe the, the Filipino or Filipinex contingent of Asian Americans have had more of like that political voice in the U.S. I don't know, maybe it's more in Hawaii, but I'm also just curious about that, that other, you know, politicized voice from an Asian racialized perspective mm-hmm. that, that I think is still needed in the U.S. context, but at the same time, Asianness continues to be like it, it just it, can, it continues to broaden racially um, in a way that I don't see that happening with other races. So, it, so I guess what I'm saying is I'm constantly wondering about the political stakes of of being critical as as an Asian body in the U.S. Um, sorry, when the public discourse seems to continually depoliticize Asian the Asian race. That makes sense. Sort of. Um, who's depoliticizing ourselves or the public? Both. Okay. Both. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Yeah. I. I mean. Um, can you? Uh, I think you asked like. Yeah. Sorry. Three questions. So I'm trying to figure I went, out. <laughs> I went around in circles, but but um. Yeah. I guess I'm just I'm just curious to hear if you have a particular kind of uh, drive or, or interest even in articul- articulating more of your perspective from, uh, from that position, like the Asian Americanist critique position or, mm. or a kind of politicized location coming specifically from your experience as Asian American. Yeah. I don't know if it's unique to me. I've always been interested in it, I know that in a way that, especially when I was in in like undergrads, that a lot of my the other Asian Americans in uh, in college weren't really concerned about. I mean, it seemed like most of them were more concerned with 
you know, getting a good finance job so that they could like buy a good car and have a nice house and go to Las Vegas every weekend from New York City or something like that. So I'm not sure what is specific to me about it. And I know like the work, the sculptures that I was making to apply to grad school, they were like, that was me trying to talk about political issues. So I was like making work about the Arab Springs because I didn't know how to talk about my own identity within a political context, which I think is sort of tying back to what you're talking about. There just isn't as clear or as a, a vocal voice, especially 10 years ago mm-hmm. about it, or at least I wasn't aware of it. I mean, I'm sure they existed or I know they existed based on the literature, but I think, yeah, I mean, I'm always critical of it. I think I just posted a Instagram uh, photo that I, um, it was a repost and it was like this white woman and like, she's labeled as like East Asian Americans uh, concerned about equal rights. And she's like, her eyes are closed and she's like listening to music. And then the background is like a person being uh, tackled by the police and the police is labeled as ice. And then the person being tackled is like, like Southeast Asians. Right. Um, and so I think I'm critical in that sense, in the, in the sense that the mom minority tends to target, you know, what uh, Amy Ali Wong calls as, you know, uh, fancy Asians versus jungle Asians. I don't know if you know that. Right. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so just like the, when you think of, especially on campuses, you know, there's like Chinese Asian association or Korean uh, Asian association or like Japanese, but like, you don't really have those subcategories for most Southeast Asians. Right. Uh, I think you might usually, you might have like Indian, but like definitely you do not, do not hear much about Mongolian, Cambodian, Filipino, Thai, they just, the numbers aren't there. And mm-hmm. so there's definitely, when I look at it, an impression that most Asian Americans don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's partly when I'm kind of trying to unpack a bit more because I think it's partly my own disidentification with the category of Asian American. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, for political means, I constantly wonder if if I should be more explicit about identifying as Asian American so that there can be a politicized Asian American voice Um, in in whatever, in whatever realm that I'm active in, even though it's not like, you know, a huge platform, but even in the classroom, you know, whether I should specifically name my position in the, in the sense that a lot of black and brown folks and Latinas folks, Latinx folks, more explicitly do because of the way that they're racialized Um, differently. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I agree with you. I don't see that happening so much. Yeah. I mean, I never thought about that. I I guess because my work is about it, like in all my artist statements, I'm saying I'm an Asian American. So I never really thought about not hiding it or not, Mm -hmm. or at least I don't know if you're hiding it or just not explicitly saying it. For me, I think from a political stance, I do think it's important. Okay. I think yeah. it's, I think it's important because you in in that sense you're acknowledging your position in power. Right. Right. Like white people have such a hard time identifying as white out loud, you uh-huh. know, because they're they're beyond race or they're the they see themselves as the majority, so they don't have to explain the subcategory that they exist in. And so uh-huh. I think by not 
doing that, you are in a sense taking yourself out of that system and you're not, yeah, you're not saying where, where you are in that system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you tend to go between Chinese American and Asian American in terms of your descriptors or do you typically just stick to Asian American? I think it depends. I mean, I usually, I think in my artist statements, I go back and forth because sometimes I'm like, I sometimes want to be ambiguous depending who's reading it, you know, so that, so that I can be, I can be asked the question, where are you really from? Whereas if I just said Chinese, then they, they won't, but I mean, for the most part, if, you know, um, depending if it's like a safe space, I would just say, I'll be definitely say I'm Chinese American. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that we didn't get to that you'd like to address? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm, I, I mean, I read your article and I think that's what drew me to talking to you. I was curious. Yeah. I guess like, where is that, is that, is that the article that will eventually expand to like your entire PhD or yeah. And then I guess I'm interested in, I guess if you could talk, what have you learned through this process of getting your PhD and tackling these issues? Um, that you weren't really thinking about when you were in master's program or before. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The article I think was really a pivot point for me because, and thinking back on it now, because it's already been, I wrote it at the end of 2016. And there was a moment where a friend of mine just sent me like a call for papers. She's like, Oh, maybe you're interested in, submitting to this book project that that the these two co-editors were trying to launch and the project took a really long time to unfold so i think i even submitted the abstract in 2014 so it was it didn't seem like there was going to be real stakes to it because it was just kind of seemed kind of informal and was asking for reflections critical reflections on the notion of critique and, and contemporary art but at the time, I had been so removed from the art world, and I was thinking, I was really being able to reflect back on my education and thinking of how whitewashed and hegemonic it was, especially being in, in Hawaii. And, and I just like started to write about it, and it was, it was a really difficult process, mostly because I just, I just didn't think that it was going to be relevant. You know, I... I, I I'm so attached to or identified with my history of being a visual artist because I think a lot of that comes with like early, you know, English acquisition trauma or something like I gravitated towards arts and the visual because I didn't have to speak or I didn't have to like or feel like I didn't have to explain myself. The work speaks for itself. And I think a lot Mm -hmm. of that still remained. And that was partly why it was a difficult process, but I also really wanted to say something. Yeah. And, um, and that was just really the first pivot when after I, I submitted it and the book launched and there was a, a CAA panel um, of the contributors, I, I read an excerpt or I read like, um, or I wrote another little like synopsis reflecting on it for the panel and it was really well received. I, I got really great feedback and I ended up meeting 
someone who teaches at MassArt who has now become a really close friend and collaborator and and she like was really excited about it and she started teaching it and she started like sending it out to her network and and it just gave me the sense that that there could be uh, uh, a way to do a certain kind of work that I've always wanted to do by by speaking to the gaps and the, the issues in in contemporary art education or mm-hmm. or um, art school and uh, and then of course I started having so many nourishing conversations with people and specifically with with artists of color and their experiences of art of art school and. I was also really moved. I went to RISD for undergrad and there was a huge student protest at RISD. And I don't know if you've seen the video called the room of silence. Yeah. 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 And, um, I was so struck by what they were able to do with that. And I wanted to make sense of why that couldn't be possible when I was there. So kind of thinking generationally, like what has shifted from 2004 to 2016 that allows that kind of public voice from art students possible because when I started as a painting major, it was the day of nine 11 really? and um, wow. yeah. And I was so haunted by that all throughout undergrad and there was no conversation, no public like um, memorial or discussion or anything in studio classes that made me understand what was happening in the world. And I think I was also just like really in awe of these students. And I, I, I quickly discovered that there was, it was really, it's the generation. And I started interviewing all of these students from, from like, you know, post, I'm kind of roughly calling them like the Black Lives Matter movement generation because they grew up with protests. You know, they were like in grade school when Occupy happened and then all throughout their schooling, there was one protest after another. And of course, social media changes changes how you participate in the world. So I think that's the biggest kind of like takeaway, um, which is still evolving. But I'm I'm really able to see the world through this current generation's eyes in a way that allows me to see what was missing when I was in school, and it also allows me to see just my own positionality, you know, what a writing project could do, or I'm kind of interested in these cultural acts, like of a podcast or a piece of writing or speech acts, you know, in addition to art objects that can maybe shift the culture of, of the field. Yeah. Um, but I'm not very optimistic about it either. You're not? <laughs> it, it, it really goes in and out. And yeah. I think... And, and I don't know, you know, because it's hard. It's sometimes it feels like, oh, it's really exciting. Maybe there's something happening. But I've also, and I feel this too on my part, but I also pick this up from a lot of people I talk to, but like just this general exhaustion. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's just like, is it worth it? Is it worth doing this work? Am yeah. I being used? Am I being co-opted by the institution? Like, yes, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah. absolutely. Like I'm a diverse hire at University of Hartford. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, can, wait, Connecticut, of, Connecticut, Hartford. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you know, while I enjoy my interactions with with the students and 
I have a lot of POC students. I also feel like, like I need more support. You know, like I wish I was a part of a more, like I wish there were other, I mean, I have some really great colleagues there, but, um, but I'm always scared that they're going to leave me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because, because it's not a place where we can really thrive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I know that um, feeling. We're just there. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that, like, there's always a little bit of desperation or exhaustion. <laughs> yeah. And, and sometimes that can just be, sometimes it's just like, you just don't want to deal with it anymore. You know, you just need a break or you want to do something else. Or you don't, have um, to, you don't have to explain. I think that's, that's, um, the most tiring thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, I guess, I mean, I think a lot, like every time I've had issues, the first thing that like, if I were to tell a white person this, the first thing they'd say, it'd be like, well, I don't have much experience in that. So I don't know what, yeah. or like it, with a stance that they're not even sure if what happened was even right or wrong, you know, which is, which I always found really funny. Cause like kind of going back to like, I guess if you had a similar situation with like a white gay man or a white woman, like even if the person it's assumed in most, most, I guess, art elitist circles that even if you don't know much about, you know, how at least how to like comfort the person or like, you know, you can see the situation as possibly like problematic. Whereas like I've noticed in most race related situations, a lot of people just don't even know uh, what to say. And then like, then proceed to then say, I don't have experience with it. And like, look at you, like you have to explain the entire situation. Yeah. Yeah. Like a student I interviewed said, if you're the one identifying the problem, then you're tasked with fixing it. And, you know, if you are one of the only or the only POC in a a white institution that is trying to ride this trend of diversity and inclusion, then everyone feels like you're the expert on it. And in some ways you are, but it doesn't mean that you have to do that work. And, and it's always going to be exhausting because it's always personal. You know, it's never just the work. Mm -hmm. And this is not a new problem. You know, it's been an issue for minorities since the dawn of of the U.S. empire. But it's unclear to me if, and I think maybe that's what I'm trying to reach for in my project, is like, is there a sense of possibility here? You know, like, how can we change? We galvanize around this. Yeah, like kind of assessing the, the stakes a little bit and trying to see what the possibilities are. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it's one step at a time. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's one step at a time and also like a lot of it is being luck. I like, I'm not sure if you have any insight in what Yale did since you left. Cause I feel like Yale is sort of like, I feel like, from an outsider perspective, Yale's sort of now what all the other schools want to be doing. I feel like when I look at their their faculty and their student body within the MFA programs, hmm. I'm not sure. And if, what's that? What do you mean in terms of what other programs want to be? Oh, like the rest are trying to be diverse without actually thinking about what that means, which. <laughs> to me means like actually having diversity and not tokenizing people, but also doing the hard work that I don't think they realize, which is outreach and making sure that you have enough candidates applying so that 
you don't then have like one black, brown, or Asian person applying, and then that becomes a representation of all black, brown, Asian people, according to the faculty, who then either just, they then start getting the sense that black, brown, Asian bodies are not good at art, or they'll take the one person who applied, and then if they're a bad fit, they'll then make that decision, and then they then perpetuate the idea of whiteness. Uh Whereas when I look at Yale, I mean, again, I didn't go to Yale. I'm sure Yale has some issues, but like when I talked to my friend Devin, he's like a black queer man. And I mean, I mean, I guess also in the art world, there people are always talking about like the Yale MFAs. And every time I look at the graduating body, it's like, it looks way more diverse than uh, every other MFA program. There's like uh, at least two to three black bodies, Asian bodies, it's not like all people from all different types of black, brown, Asian bodies, but it's definitely like a step that uh, I see also on the faculty level uh, that I don't see happening both at my MFA program, which I, they're trying to change, but it's I think it's really hard when I look at the faculty re, like pushing back against it or also not recognizing their privilege. And then, or like as I apply to grad schools and I'm just like looking at like, an all white faculty and I'm just like, all right, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting to hear because I think that shift at Yale is recent. It didn't feel like that when I was there at all. But I mean, I guess in that sense it's amazing that they even were able to do that in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's optimistic. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess the fact that it's Yale doing it and not some like no name school. And so like they're, in that sense is nice because programs always looking to Yale, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whether it happens, I don't know. And I'm sure you being on the job market, you don't feel like anything's changing. Yeah. Change, change happens really unevenly. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I think, and I guess for me and hope, I think probably for you, it seems like, like having this dialogue also allows us to speak about it. You know, I mean, the podcast, has given me a voice, I think in the same way that your writing has given you a voice. It's okay. allowed me to be more comfortable talking about it in spaces uh, and calling people out and like just being aware of where, where I am in an institution, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time, but this is a really great, fruitful conversation. Thank yeah. you so much for doing this. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed it too. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say? I uh, or like I was. Yeah. Is there more I can find about you? There's. I didn't find too much information about you online. Yeah, I've been, I've been very <laughs> sheepish. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I I'm happy to share. Um, you know, things as I go. Yeah. Again, my writing process is, is very slow, so there won't be any output any anytime soon, but, but I'll definitely keep you updated. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Best of luck. Thank you, Billy. Bye. Talk soon. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself. Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website 
www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.